2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're continuing in our study, uh, and we do come to chapter 6, we're still on the subject of being servants. That's who we are. We established that way back in chapter 2. We're still on that subject, or more appropriately, Paul is still on that subject. Um, if you've read the chapter ahead, uh, you, you're familiar with the content, and you'll know that this is kind of a unique chapter. Right in the middle of it, there's this big list that Paul makes of the trials and the blessings of, that he and his companions have experienced, and just some of the things that go along, at least for Paul in, in his setting, uh, with being a servant, right? And if you do, if you have read ahead, you may have found yourself asking, as you read this long list, uh, what's the point of it being here? Why is this list, and we'll look at it here in just a couple minutes, why is this list of all the, the trials and tribulations and the joys and the blessings, why is this list here? What is its purpose at, at this part of the letter? And that's, that's what we're doing. Um, Paul's been talking about servanthood. He's been talking about you know, our inadequacy, and Christ makes us adequate. We're insufficient. Christ makes us sufficient. Um, he's talked about our value and our worth, even in our brokenness, our identity in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Uh, we just got done talking about the, our task as his servants. We've been given the word of reconciliation. So with that kind of progression of thought, how does this list that's in this chapter fit in? And that's what we're going to attempt to answer this morning, to see what Paul is trying to say with this list. So we're just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It's only 18 verses, so let's go ahead and look to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, chapter 6, verse 1, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry may not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in affliction, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and honor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide your heart also to us. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we look to it. We ask that, that our minds and our hearts would be enlightened, Lord. Father, as we have in our prayer requests to you, Lord, and our testimonies about you, Lord, we, we've heard this morning of the many, many trials, Lord, that your people face 
and of your faithfulness to us, Lord. So we're confident as we look to your word this morning that you'll be faithful to speak to our hearts and minds the truth that we need, Lord, to faithfully serve you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So here in, in chapter 6, uh, Paul begins with a continuation of what he was saying in chapter 5. Remember, that ended with Paul's plea to be reconciled, to receive the grace of God. And now he says that you would not receive it in vain. So he, he's continuing with what he said in the last chapter, but he raises this issue of receiving the grace of God in vain. And we'll talk about that. And then there's this big list in the middle of, of all that he's experienced, he and his companions. And then finally, at the end, he talks about our relationships or their relationships, especially with unbelievers. And so reading through this, at least when, as I've looked at it, there's some natural questions that kind of come uh, to the surface. And, and three made themselves real, again, evident in my thinking. First of all, this whole question of receiving his grace in vain. What is that talking about? That's kind of a scary concept if you think about it for just a minute what's that mean and then there's this list this blessings and trials and all that what's what's that doing there and then finally uh how does the list and what's in the list fit into this whole issue of service how, what connects all that together um what's and then this issue of our relationship with unbelievers how's that fit into that so that's how we're going to approach the text this morning uh, to answer these questions. So first of all, this question of receiving God's grace in vain. What, what's he talking about there? Um, and this is not going to get into a whole discussion of eternal security and sovereign elect. We're not going to go there because we don't need to. That's not what this is about. This is about understanding that we have the capacity, in some measure, to render the grace of God vain, right? One, now, one quick note before we go any farther, just as an observation on the text, throughout this entire chapter, Paul is really careful to say we a lot. It's not just Paul, he says we. Everything he's, Paul is very careful to include his, his co-workers with him, and we need to be careful in our own experience, because we are so individualistic in our Christian walk and our Christian perspective. So we need to be mindful, this is a corporate act. Just as we gather to worship, there's such a powerful and holy moment when we gather to worship. That is such an important thing. That's just a note to begin with by observation. But to the question of vanity or in vain, the terminology that Paul uses here, that you render not the grace of God vain, uh, it's the word kinos, and you'll want to remember that word kinos, and it means just plain empty. Um, it's not empty like, you know, when you finish your coffee cup and you set it down and there's still a few drops left in it. No, no. it's like if you forget that coffee cup there and leave it for three days and come back. It's that kind of empty. It is bone dry, empty. Absolutely empty. Okay? It has the effect of sometimes of being empty words. Paul is, 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 is warning the Corinthian church, be so very careful that you do not, in some kind of action, and that's what we're going to be looking at in this chapter, in some kind of action, render the effect of God's grace in your life as being completely empty. Empty of effect, because God's grace has been extended. That's a given. And His grace is extended. That's a given. There's nothing we can do to change that in any way to limit it. The question becomes, do we, through our behavior, somehow limit the effect it will have in our lives? And of course, that's the last thing any thinking person wants to do, any thinking Christian at least, is act in a way that puts some kind of restraint or some kind of limit or, God forbid, make it empty, vain, 
God's grace. So that's what we're talking about here. Whatever Paul's leading into here is really significant because it has the potential to nullify his grace, and that is extraordinary. And his concern is for the church, and it could be any church, um, because if we're not careful, if we don't continually, deliberately give space, both individually and collectively, to the Word of God, to the presence of the Spirit, and to the integrity of the body of Christ, we may find ourselves in that place where his word is indeed rendered vain. We don't want that to happen. So let's look at the list, because that's where Paul goes with this. So beginning in verse 3 and all the way through verse 10, Paul has, in a very traditional Hebraic fashion, a lot of parallelism uh, in, in the thinking. That's very Hebraic. In this parallel fashion, he has blessings and tribulations. He's got good stuff. He's got bad stuff um, that have come his way and the way of all of his companions and it's a pretty extensive list. There's a lot of stuff in this list. And none of it's theoretical. It's all stuff Paul's actually experienced as we put together his, his life from the book. So I find myself, as this week, going over and over this, this list, this list this week, asking myself exactly what's happening here. I did a little exercise, and it turned out to be, I think, quite profitable. And I want to share that exercise with you. And in order to do it, I'm going to have to use the G word, grammar. Now, a lot of us are, some of us are really comfortable with grammar, but I know some are not. They don't seem like it, but it, nobody's ever died from it that I know of, right? Um, but I think it's helpful to be mindful that in communicating with people, every expression ultimately comes down to two things. There's two things that are the heart of every expression, every converse, every statement. You think about it as a parent, especially if you have children over the ages of 12, which that's kind of an abstract or random number. That's if they're old enough to be like going out and doing things out of eyesight, especially at hours of the night when maybe you'd they really, they'd rather they weren't, right? So you're a parent with a teenager and the phone rings. What are the two things you ask? Well, you might only ask one. If you recognize the voice, the first question's answered. Because the first question is, who is this? Oh, you recognize your child. What did you do? What happened? Who's in the hospital? Right. Two things that form the basis of every, the two elemental components of every conversation is who and what. Subject, verb, all right? That's what we're talking, right? Subject, verb, who and what. In this list, everything else in the sentence is detail, right? Everything else just tells us about the subject and the verb. Everything else is detail, right? Um, those, in this list, we know who the who is. It's Paul and his companions that have gone through all this stuff, right? But what is the actual what that happened? Because there's a lot of stuff here. What is the actual thing that Paul's talking about. If in describing Paul and his companions in this list, we ask the question, they what? They fill in the blank with one word. Can you come up with it? Because there is one word to answer that question as we look at Paul and his companions in this list that Paul gives us. They what? Okay? Now I'm going to read the list again, 
with this is the, this is the process I, I, I went through this week. That's why I shared this. They and and see if you can come up with what the answer is. Okay, so we start um, with um, verse three. They giving no cause for offense in anything. They and you're looking for one word, right? The one thing that is happening, right? They giving no cause for offense in anything. They, in order that the ministry not be discredited, they, in everything commending themselves as servants of God, they, in much endurance, they, in afflictions, they, in hardships, they, in distresses, they, in beatings, they, in imprisonments, they, in tumults, they, in labors, they, in sleeplessness, they, in hunger, they, in purity, they, in knowledge, they, in patience, they, in kindness, they in the Holy Spirit, they in genuine love, they in the word of truth, they in the power of God, they by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, they by glory and dishonor, they by evil report and good report, they regarded as deceivers and yet true, they as known yet unknown, they as dying yet behold they live, they as punished yet not put to death, they as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. They as poor, yet making many rich. They as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Who got the one word? Any volunteers? Nope. 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 Verse 9. Ready? They live. That's the only verb in that entire section. The only verb. They live. Everything else is a description of how they lived or about them as they live. That's Paul's statement. They live. What's the point? The point is, as Paul is describing this whole process by which we live as servants of the living God, as we are in relationship with God, as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we are living our lives hopefully in such a way by our deliberate actions that the grace of God is not rendered vain, that they live. They live. The word is zao. The noun is zoe, from which we get our, our word zoology. It's just basic life. This is all about living. It's a description of their lives. Paul and his companions simply live. Everything that happens in these verses, all the stuff, it's the stuff, the whole list that he gives us, the good and the bad and everything in between. It's, it's the stuff, all of this stuff, is what stands his life and the lives of his fellows in stark contrast to kinos, empty. All of this stuff he describes, all of which are a byproduct of his being a servant of the living God, of him doing the job God gave, all of it, the good and the bad, all stands in contrast to a life that is empty, right? This worked out so well because I forgot to bring these this morning. Can I have a jar? 
This is a jar of beet juice. The beet juice isn't necessarily relevant, the jar is. Um, the Apostle Paul holds his life up in this passage like a mason jar. If it's empty, you know it. If it's full, you know it. Paul is saying our lives are just like mason jars. We have held them up to you, O Corinthian church, in complete clarity, and you can see what's in them. You can know us because of the transparency of our lives, who we are. Um, it's been our privilege, our family's privilege. Thank, thank you for the decent jar. Um, it's been our privilege um, as a family, I mean, most of you know this, to, to, to live in another country and, and to kind of travel quite a bit. One of the most incredible dining experiences I ever had with our family was we were in Hungary, in Budapest. And of course, a lot of the buildings in Budapest dated back to the communist era. I mean, just bleh, bland, square, nothing attractive, just concrete buildings. There are a lot of gorgeous buildings in Budapest too, but our hotel wasn't one of them. It was just this really bland building. And so we went down to have breakfast in the morning and you know, I didn't know what to expect. I was looking forward to some Hungarian food. You know, I didn't know, but didn't expect anything, any decor that would really catch my eye. It had the coolest decor of any restaurant I have ever been in. Because all around, all the walls in this restaurant ran a shelf. And it was nothing but mason jars. All these huge mason jars that contained virtually everything somebody living in that part of the world could possibly put in a mason jar, right? There was fruit, and there was vegetable, there was stuff I had no idea what it was. You know, and it was just, that was the decor of this restaurant, all this different preserved food. And for me, it was like, I don't need a menu, man. Give me that jar and that jar, and let me just try this stuff. Unfortunately, that wasn't, wasn't possible. But I was really struck as, as sitting there looking at those jars thinking, it's almost like you can just read the whole culture. You can read how these people live. And in your mind's eye, you can see people harvesting the stuff, you know, picking the fruit, whatever, you know, jarring the stuff. Um, I don't know why we say canning when we put it in jars. Nobody ever says jarring, right? But, you know, as they went through the process of putting all this food away, I thought, this is like, a, again, a display of their whole, this is a display of their lives, right? All in clear mason jars, right? You can understand them. Now, our family, we don't, we don't jar a lot. My wife makes great raspberry jam, and there's just something wonderful about holding up a jar of raspberry jam, you know. Um, it's just, it's wonderful. But if that, if you like, if you like step into our pantry, and that's all we had, you know, on one hand, it would be pretty cool. Um, but it would also be kind of a limited diet, right? And I'd try it, I'd just, you know. But it, it, it wouldn't be complete, right? There should be, you know, a cross-section of what is necessary for us to eat, right? And I know I'm kind of beating the analogy to death there. But the point is, the point is, by holding up his life and the lives of his companions for everyone to see, especially the completeness of this list, again, the good and the bad, it's all mixed in there together, there's a balance in Paul's life that he was open and honest about. Yeah, we've been in prison, yeah, and we've had, you know, Reason to celebrate, too. Yeah, we've, you know, we've been dirt poor, but we've also experienced you know, the wealth of the gospel in people's lives. The whole balance of Paul's life is made evident in this list. Again, just like a well-stocked well pantry 
little clearmation jars. Uh, the point isn't the balance itself. The balance isn't the goal. It's not an end. But in the list, in the clarity that he shows, there's simple evidence that Paul and his companions live in the real world. We sometimes think of, you know, the Apostle Paul and people that traveled with him like they were of a different, you know, mud. No. The same stuff we were made of, but they had found the way to work that out. And that is the challenge, isn't it? Finding out how to work out the reality of being a child of God in the everyday of the world, right? How to function in this, in this world in a way that honors Christ. And there's a challenge to that. Again, as we try to live our lives as God would have us, try to live as Christ's followers, as his servants, and to do so in a world that's not at all conducive to that. You don't have to attempt to do much in terms of your own life or reaching out to others. You don't have to attempt to do much in, in serving the Lord to realize that this world is not at all conducive to that. And it's not just sins. It's just sometimes it's the responsibilities that we carry. The jobs we have, the families we have, and, and things that we find ourselves torn different ways. That's that normative human experience Paul is showing in this list, that as his followers, as his servants, we will find ourselves torn in different directions. Anybody who attempts uh, to live a life that honors God, that is faithful to his word, is obedient, that meets their responsibilities, is going to find themselves torn, especially if you try to do it with an attitude of joy. I mean, it's easy to do it and be all dour and negative because it's so hard to do this. You know, that's easy. But to do it in a way that exhibits joy. Uh, this friend that Pastor Joyce referred to um, spending the day with yesterday, uh, she's got plenty of reasons not to be happy. But she is. She's got justification to not have a life full of joy, but she doesn't. Her life is indeed characterized by joy. And yeah, that is a challenge. That's a challenge to bring those kingdom values and priorities into our life in a way and still be at peace with one another. And that, I believe, is where the Corinthian church is at. And that's why Paul has this list, because they're still struggling with trying to be Christian people, and yet there's still so much of the world left in them which leads right into the next section of the chapter where he says in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers, right? Now, typically, that verse of Scripture comes into the discussion when we're talking with a believer that's thinking about getting married to an unbeliever. Right? When, when that subject comes up, this verse comes out of our mouths at the speed of light. Boom! Automatic response, especially for pastors. Boom! Don't you know, right? This, the applicant, and that's, by the way, a very reasonable application of this verse. It's a huge issue. Um, you know, it's really interesting. When I counseled um, before premarital counseling with couples where um, a, a oh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, I know. Well, there's a, a believer marrying an unbeliever. I always do something, and after I've asked the believer about this verse, I turn to the unbeliever, and I say, do you love this person? Oh, yeah. And would you, would you ask this person to violate the very soul of their character? Well, never. Well, that's what you're doing. You're asking them to do something that's totally in violation of who they are. And I, I've never had anybody not get married for that reason. But what I have discovered is it usually impacts, that question usually impacts the non-believer more than the believer. I can't figure out why that is, but I thought I needed to share that. Um, 
because it does violate who we are. But the point to be made is, this is not just talking about Christians marrying non-Christians. This is every one of our social and, and every one of our contacts and engagements in life. And yes, we do business with the world. We do business in the world. But that is different than establishing close personal relations in the world. When, for example, two people go into business, and whether it's their main business or a side business, two people go into a business agreement, and one is a Christian and one isn't, it doesn't take long for the person who is a Christian to find out the other person is not playing by the same rules. Whether it's filling out tax forms or insurance or whatever, all those responsibilities, as soon as there's a question of, of, of conscience, do we, do we cut a corner or not? So the difference to show up. Or they better show up. That's another tragedy, but that's a different subject, where sometimes the Christian and the non-Christian go into business together, and they're both acting like non-Christians. That's another subject. But for those of us who are, who are sincerely and genuinely attempting to serve the Lord, we need to be careful of every association that brings us into... In, again, we have to be in contact with the unbeliever, otherwise, you know, how do they get see the Lord in us? But we, at the same moment, don't want to be, and Paul uses the figure yoked together, tied together in an equal relationship. That's the word picture here. We don't want to be tied together in a relationship that gives them as much influence over us as we're supposed to have over them. That's how you make that determination, right? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, right? That's not where we need to be, right? We sometimes think of, like Paul's maybe changing the subject here. He's not changing at all. He's talking about how to navigate this world in the realities that we face as believers, right? He's, Paul's talking about living with the complex and often conflicting realities that everyone who lives in service to the King of Kings, everyone who attempts to live out the kingdom of God priorities, we all have. How do we manage that balancing act? How do we do that when we feel torn two ways? Well, Paul gives us two word pictures in this portion of Scripture that I think help us. And when you find yourself, you know, in whatever kind of circumstance or situation, like torn with your responsibilities, feeling like, you know, God would have you do one thing, God's word would have you do one thing, but the circumstances are pulling you another way. He gives us these two word pictures that I think might help. And, and we'll end with this. Um, the first goes back to chapter 5. At the end of chapter 5, we just touched on this really lightly last week. In verse 20, Paul uses this word picture. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. You ever think about that phrase? We are Christ's ambassadors. Um, interestingly, the word that's translated ambassador relates to the, it's like almost the exact same word as the word for elder. Now, I did not see that one coming. The word for elder, from which we get our English word presbyter, meaning a, a governing elder, right? An older person is what it means. I didn't see that one coming. Um, it means elder. Um, I think the, maybe the best way to understand what an ambassador really is is to compare it to some similar words that are not identical. For example, um, a courier, right? A courier. That's the person you know that when you want to deliver something, like a message or a small package, you call them and they arrive on the little scooter. You know, If you've ever lived in a foreign city, these people are amazing. They risk their lives over somebody's lunch. Yeah, but the courier arrives and you hand them the whatever 
Do they have any personal investment in that whatever? No, they have no connection with it at all. They normally will ask you, is there anything illegal? Other than that, they don't care, right? And they, they deliver it and then and they leave, right? They have no personal attachment to it at all, okay? That's a courier. Then there's a messenger. That's like the next step in personal attachment. The messenger may have to actually convey the message verbally, so they're a little bit more involved, but that's as far as it goes. You know, the messenger will show up and say, eh, and maybe wait for a response, and then they deliver their response, but that's as far as it goes, right? Then you come to an ambassador. That's totally different. Because first of all, the ambassador probably has something to do with drafting the message in the first place. You know, like say the president wants to communicate with a foreign leader and they don't just write the letter and send it, they talk to the ambassador and say, how should I word this? Because I'm speaking into a different culture. I need to know how my words are going to be received. I want to, be, I want to avoid any words that aren't good, you know, that have the wrong meaning. So the ambassador will be involved with drafting the message. And then when the ambassador takes the message that they've helped draft, and they hand it to whoever else they're talking to, they kind of gauge their response and go, ooh, that didn't work well. Can I explain that? Or, oh, let me try this. Or if there's other questions, they can answer them, right? Not everything has to go back to the original sending authority for approval, right? And then when the other guy can, okay, well, I read your letter, and I can do this, and I can do that, Ambassador's in a position to say, oh, that ain't going to fly. I can tell you right now it's not going to work. Or, hmm, maybe we can negotiate this point. See, an ambassador has a close enough personal relationship with the sending entity that they're actually in a position to do some negotiation because they know both parties. You see, see the, the power of being an ambassador for Christ? We're not merely, we're sure not just couriers. I hope we're more invested in that. And we're not simply messengers. We don't just deliver the message and like, yeah, fine, whatever. No, we are actually put in a place of being able to represent one party with enough understanding of the other party that we can communicate. And we can negotiate the relationship in a way that there is ultimately a reconciliation if there's been a broken relationship. Much more powerful. That's what we are called to be. And that's why this list is so important. Because we can, most of us can at least associate with some of the stuff on this list. Some of the Corinthians could all at least relate to some of this. Paul was in a good position to talk to both, to both parties. That's one of the analogy he uses. It's all about relationship. And then at the other, the other word picture is at the very end of this chapter, chapter six, verse seventeen, or rather verse eighteen. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, the minute we talk about relating to God as a father and us as his children, obviously aware that not everybody had the best relationship with their father. But even if you didn't have the right relationship with your father, you probably understand that you didn't have the right relationship with your father. Think of God in terms of what that relationship should have been. If your relationship with your father wasn't good, think of God in terms of what that relationship should have been. And if your relationship was good, thank God for that and say, that is how my father loves me. See, it's all about intimacy and knowledge. It's all about the jar that is our lives as we hold it up for everybody to see, that mason jar, for everybody to see the, the, the mixed bag that it is, if you will, the fruit cocktail that it is, the good and the bad, so that they can understand that we understand them, but we also understand our God. That's how we function as an ambassador. That's how we function as a child of God. The way we do this 
the way we live and abide as aliens in this world, as I know it's a whole other subject, but you see the connection. The way we live and abide as aliens in this world is by remembering who we are, servants. That's our identity. So much is simplified if we simply remember who we are and what we're doing in this world. We are servants of the King. We are servants of our Lord, here to do His bidding. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you that in your, in your goodness and wisdom, you sent your apostle Paul to a city that is so much like us, because Corinth is so much like us, Father. And all the issues and the challenges, Father, that, that Paul faced and his companions faced in trying to bring the gospel, Father, not just to the place that it was heard and accepted, but, Father, this process of it being integrated into the daily lives of every person in that Corinthian church, Father. Lord, that's the same challenge we face, Lord. As we try to open our lives, Father. See, as Paul called the Corinthian churches, open their lives. As we open our lives to you, Lord, and to one another, and we see your character formed in us. And then we can function in that role, Lord, of being a servant that expresses you to a lost and dying world. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.